Well, today we are beginning a new uh, series of Sunday School lessons on uh, that should take us through the end of this year. Uh, we are going to do seven lessons on J.C. Ryle's book entitled Holiness. If you've never read anything by J.C. Ryle, I, would, I think you absolutely should. And uh, this is, he's not an author that you have to uh, really strain your brain and your mind to, to figure out what he is saying. Uh, he's very easy to read. Uh, his, his kindness, his clarity of mind, the sweetness of his soul, the, the sweetness of the Lord really does come through in his writing. He is he's easy to read. He's enjoyable to read. He's convicting. Uh, he, the Lord prepared a wonderful servant uh, for the church. And though he's been uh, dead for now about 120 years, he's still uh, blessing the church. Uh, J.C. Ryle, let me just give you a little bit of a biography about him because I, I think that's interesting. He was born to very well-to-do parents. Uh, Growing up, he lacked nothing. His father was a banker. He went to the finest schools that England had to offer, and he did very well in all of those, in all of his classes. He, uh, he wasn't a prodigy, prodigy or anything, but, uh, he always was in the highest, uh, honors. Um, he, was not just a good student. He was, Sam, you'll appreciate this, he was literally one of the best cricket players in all of England at the time. Uh, And I'm not being, uh, I'm not exaggerating. He played on the the highest league and team and whatever, and he was was a real cricket stud, so Sam would appreciate that. Um, But as he came down to the finals in his last year at Oxford, he became sick with a severe chest infection, uh, so something we can relate to there. Uh, and for the first time in 14 years, he took out a Bible and began to read it. And he was reading it and reading it. Then one Sunday, he soon after that, he came late into church, but he arrived in the part of the service where uh, the scripture reading was going on. And the scripture reading that morning was from Ephesians. And as he listened to the word of God being read, the Lord opened his eyes and he was made a new man and he was given faith. Uh, His eyes were opened when he heard in in the King James, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so he was converted through the reading of the word of God. No sermon. Um, no comment, just reading. Well, did his life get easier after that point? Was it smooth sailing and a bed of roses for J.C. Ryle? Well, uh, not at all. Uh, in some ways, all of his best days of worldly success were, were behind him, being the great cricket player, being a great student, all of those sorts of things, living in a well-to-do family. Uh, those things faded behind him. Uh, he thought he would go into politics, and so he thought he would study law. He kept at it for six months, and then his chest infection came back, and that put a halt to his uh, law studies. And at the same time, his father's bank 
uh, went under. They went bankrupt. They lost everything. And so with no money behind him, politics, uh, it was out of the question for J.C. Ryle. Well, what do you do if you are educated in England and you have no job prospects? Well, what do you do with an Oxford degree? Well, you can go and become a clergy member. And that's what he did. That's what he became. Uh, we might think that a bit problematic, and maybe he did too later in his years. Uh, but that's the door that was open for him. And he said long afterwards, I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. If I had not been ruined... I should never have been a clergyman, never have preached a sermon or written a track or a book. So the Lord's providence and it finds its winding trail right down to Grace Fellowship Church on this November uh, 2021. Uh, J.C. Ryle was married three times. His first two wives died while he was while they were young. Um, He had a number of children. He served in rural parishes and urban parishes. He had a real heart for blue-collar workers, the the miners and the factory workers and the farmers of 19th century England. And he wrote for them. He wrote so that they could read and understand. And we can thank God that he did. Um, We can thank God that J.C. Ryle was ruined because of what he worked and what he, he did through it. And so he had the, the best education that Oxford could offer. And then he went into the Lord's School and he got the best education there. Um, on Wednesday night, uh, the young men are going through his book, Thoughts for Young Men. And we too are now going to spend just seven weeks with him talking about holiness. Um, I don't know that I look forward to meeting uh, maybe Luther or Calvin or some really high uh, theologian in heaven. They, they might seem a little too much for me, but I do. I think I'd be very comfortable with John Charles Ryle and his very humble uh, way of doing things. He was down to earth. He was a humble, sweet man. And that's the kind of holiness he wants to help us onto in this book. Not rarefied air, not out of this world, but humble holiness. He, he begins his preface by saying, commenting on what was going on in England at the time. And he said there's lots of meetings going on, lots of camp meetings, lots of excitement, a lot of exciting speakers, a lot of exciting spiritual Uh, emotions going on. Very interesting. And he doesn't outright say those are bad. Um, He doesn't say that at all. He just says, that's interesting. That's, that's, we want to look at that. All these religious emotions and experiences, but it didn't impress him. It was interesting, but it wasn't super impressive to him. Uh, What would have impressed J.C. Ryle now as a uh, older, not, not elderly, but an older Christian. Well, listen to what he says. Do these who attend these meetings become more holy, meek, 
unselfish, kind, good-tempered, self-denying, and Christ-like at home? So that's what they are in, in these meetings. What, what are they like at home? Do they become more content with their position in life and more free from a restless craving after something different from that which God has given them? And I love this, this sentence. Do fathers, mothers, husbands, and other relatives and friends find them more pleasant and easy to live with? That's the kind of holiness that J.C. Ryle is interested in us getting. And I think that's the kind of holiness that the Bible is after. And I think, isn't that beautiful? That, wow, something has happened because these people that used to be just so hard to get along with are now pleasant to be with. Can they enjoy a quiet Sunday and quiet means of grace without noise, heat, and excitement? Above all, do, above all, do they grow in charity, that is love, especially in, in charity towards those who do not agree with them in every jot and tittle of their religion? So that's the kind of religion, that's the kind of holiness that Ryle is, is after. It's not some rarefied air, it's not some out-of-this-world sort of thing or remoteness that turns people off, that turns people away. No, holiness is beautiful, attractive love. I want you to think back in your minds to a couple of Sunday School series ago that we did on um, delighting in the Trinity. Holiness is God's overflowing, overflowing, outflowing, pure love. God is holy, holy, holy because he is so not like us in our selfishness, in our shabbiness and our grubbiness and our self-concern. Um, no, holiness should be attractive. should be winsome. Uh, right now my wife is, is talking with a woman who has some interest in Christianity, uh, but she has some real questions uh, about God and about evil and about... She, she's thinking as she looks out in the world. And she she said, like, it doesn't seem to make sense that there's a God. But then she also says, but then I look and I say, it doesn't seem to make sense that there would be no God. What do you do with that? And I really appreciate that she's thinking and that she's being honest. Uh, but she said she's known Christians and they are some of the kindest people she's ever met. And that's a problem for her. She doesn't know what to do with that. Why are these Christians so kind? And there's something there. And she's asked herself, why can't I believe? Well, that's a good problem to give to a person, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of problems we want to give to people. Where, where they're saying, I, maybe I don't know all the answers, but there's no denying that there's something there. Holiness is our, our light shining into the darkness. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, uh, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then Peter says, Dear friends, therefore I urge you, because you are these things. This is what holiness meant 
And what Peter was filling in, this is what holiness looks like. You're shining into the darkness. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So holiness, it's love. It's light. It's living like God who himself is love. And it's that kind of humble, attractive holiness that makes people more pleasant to live with that J.C. Ryle is talking about in this book. So does that sound good? That sounds something like that we want. Well, where do we begin? Where do we begin? Where do we begin with this series on holiness? Um, Ryle says you need to begin with its opposite. And you begin with sin. So all of the other men who are going to be teaching this class are going to be talking about more of the positive side. Uh, but today my, my task is, is to lay the foundation, is to dig a hole and make us to look into the hole and so in some ways, I have the most unenviable task uh, because we're going to look at sin. You have to dig deep, Ryle says, if you're going to build high. You're, you have to dig deep if you're going to build high. And so I'm getting my shovel out, and we're going to dig this hole together. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to start building out of that, that hole. Uh, Wrong views about what holiness is usually come from wrong views about sin. Uh, so without knowing what sin is, without knowing the problem, the extent, the guilt of it, uh, the, the damage that sin brings, without knowing sin, Christianity really is just a bunch of words. It's just a bunch of words that don't have any meaning. Uh, sin is not a topic that unholy people understand they very well might understand and see it in others but they don't really understand it or see it in themselves and so they could be completely eagle-eyed about the sins of others and completely blind to what's going on in their own lives Uh, so take your bibles and turn to psalm 36 psalm 36 So Psalm 36 is the Psalm of David. It says, an oracle is within my heart. An oracle literally meant a burden, a burden from the Lord. And so uh, it would be something that the Lord put on to a prophet and it weighed upon them until they spoke it. And the speaking of the oracle was like the unburdening of their heart. So this is, David is saying, this weighs upon my heart. This is here. The Lord has given to me and I've been thinking about it. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God before his eyes. So the wicked have no concern, no practical concern 
no concern that touches their lives about their guilt before God, the danger that they are in. Uh, They don't fear his judgment. They don't fear his wrath. Uh, They don't fear his righteousness. They don't fear his power. They, They just go on their way. Well, why do they do that? And David tells you why. The sinful man, the unholy man, the wicked man has just no fear. You ever see someone and says, don't they fear God? Well, why don't they? Why are they so confident? Why are they so unfazed and untouched? Well, for in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. He doesn't know his sin. Other people's sin, he might see that well enough, but his own sin, he thinks too highly of himself to ever think that he might have a problem. Unholy people have this in common. Uh, They think that somehow they're impervious to what God is saying or doing or thinking. They have no fear. So you can think you are innocent when you aren't. That's what this is saying. But that's exactly where God begins to teach people. This is where God finds people flattering themselves unconcerned, with no fear of God. And this is where God begins to teach people. He he shows them the true nature of sin. And and this is where holiness begins in our lives. This this is the foundation. This is is the first step uh, with a real personal knowledge of our sin. And so God says, let there be light. And what begins to happen is, is things that used to be dark and we didn't see them, now all of a sudden we do see them. The new creation begins like the old creation begins, with let there be light and the darkness flies away. And so um, now there's sin here. Oh no, now there's sin over here. And now there's a God. And I'm in trouble. And, And what a wretched man that I am. And now you need a Savior. Without sin, you don't need a Savior. Without a God who's angry with you, you don't need a Savior. Um, You don't fear God. You don't need a Savior. But when God says, let there be light, and the Spirit comes in, and He tears our flattery, our armor of flattery uh, apart, and it's left in, in, we're in filthy rags. And now, we say, who will save me? And, And God turns our hearts against our sin and we repent of it and so the sinner says have mercy on me a sinner and that's who the father saves that's who the father forgives that's who the father gives the spirit and writes his laws on their their hearts that's where holiness begins and so that proud person who was so unpleasant to be around Well, now they're a humble, kind person, a lost and found person. And when you've been rescued, it changes your demeanor, changes you. But it begins with sin. It begins with sin. So Ryle says, let's begin with what is sin? We all know how to use that word. But what is it? A definition. Well, 
Ryle says we need to first, before we talk about things in particular, we need to talk general. Because sin isn't really, first of all, first of all, anything that we do. It's something that we're born into. Uh, sin is our is the power. Sin is the uh, bent, the twistedness, the crookedness, uh, our wrongness, our fault, our corruption. Uh, and this is just summed up in that little phrase. We sin because we're sinners. We sin. We do actual sins because we are sinners. Uh, so just like someone with COVID coughs, uh, the coughing isn't COVID. The coughing is the proof that you have something. Um, you know, a person with a bad tooth has bad breath. Well, the bad breath isn't the cause of the bad tooth. The bad tooth is. Sin is the darkness of our hearts. It's the stubbornness of our hearts. It, it's the twistedness of our hearts. So sin is that rebellion, that self-centeredness, that bent-inness. We take everything and we make it about us. I just wonder, why are we so strongly uh, engaged and and so feels like it's so important what goes on in other states and other countries? And well, because in politics and things like that, we 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 get involved so heavily. We're so emotionally engaged because, I mean, for one reason, uh, we don't like what it's saying about us or what they're going to do to us. It could be that. Uh, I think it was Stuart Elliott who made that this very simple illustration of if you find a class photo from 30 years ago, who's the first person that you look at? Well, it, it, chances are you weren't the most interesting person in that class. Chances are you weren't doing the greatest things, but chances are that you're going to be the most interested and have the most to say about you. Um, so it's that bent inness, and that's a very—I mean—that's in a certain way that's a very silly illustration. But it just shows you that what we do is we come in and we bend every situation in, in on ourselves, and so we're born going our own way, not God's way, and and not righteousness way. We we don't care about right or wrong. We 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 all we care about is getting what we want. You have to teach a, a, a child right and wrong. You don't have to teach a child to say, I want this, and I'm going to get it. So, Ryle says, sin is that vast moral disease which affects the whole human race, every class, every place, every person. And there was only one person who was ever free from it, the Lord Jesus. And so we sin because we are sinners. So now that we have that laid out, that's where we start. Because sin is not something that gets imposed upon someone that's otherwise good. Sin is what comes out of a person who is a sinner. So what then is a a sin? A sin simply is, I mean, if we want to keep the, the metaphor going here or the, the, the illustration, a sin is what we do when we, we are in the grip of that sin. A, a sin is what we do when we act out of our sinfulness. Uh, so what is a sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says sin is any want or, or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 
And let me just put that into modern language. Sin is not doing what God's law says to do or doing what it says not to do. Sin is doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that's not in perfect conformity or or harmony with the mind and law of God. And so that can go two ways. Sin is when God says, do this, and we don't do it. Or sin is saying, God saying, don't do this, and we transgress. We go over. We cross the line. First John, the Apostle John says, sin is the transgression. It's the breaking of the law. It's not doing what it says to do or doing what it says not to do. And it can just be in your heart. That's not enough to kill your neighbor, Jesus says. You, you can't hate him. It's not enough to not sleep with your neighbor's spouse. Uh, you, you aren't even to lust after her in your heart. You see the heart in all of the commandments with number 10. You shall not covet. You can't show me someone actually coveting. Because coveting is first done here in the heart. And then it begins to act out. And that's how all the Ten Commandments are. It begins with wanting something that God says you're not to have. Or wanting something else other than what God tells us to want. Um, Sin is not loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And so we can see from there that sin can be in the heart. It can be in the mind. It can be in the, the soul. It can be in your bodily strength. It's falling short of the glory of God in any of those places. So sin is leaving something undone that God says You should do this. James says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The longer I go through life, it really is more and more the sins of omission that concern me in my own life. The the sins of not doing what I should do. Uh, One old pastor on his deathbed prayed, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, and especially my sins of omission. So holiness, then, is not just freedom from transgressions. It's a life of positive good deeds. It's a life of doing the things that God calls us to do. Um, So... If we're called to be a holy nation, Peter says, what is that? What is a holy nation to look like? It's not just freedom from the transgressions, not just not doing what we're not supposed to do. Uh, uh, we're, we're supposed to be a people whose good deeds are seen by men, experienced by men. Holiness is doing the good that we should do. 
Holiness is doing the good that we should do to the smallest child, the baby, the unborn, the elderly, the, our boss, our fellow workers, our husbands, our wives, the children, the older people. It, it's doing the good that God calls us to do, to live a life of love. But so holiness is, is those things. It's not doing what we're not supposed to do. And and doing what we should do, but but someone might ask, well, what if you don't know? We have we're, we're, we can be very slippery creatures. Well, what about if you don't know that you're sinning? Is that something else? Like I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. I didn't know that God had a problem with that. Well, is that something else? Is that some other category? Uh, is that not so bad? Is I didn't mean to, I didn't know an excuse. Well, let me just say, in a certain way, it's certainly worse to know and to sin anyways. Uh, the Old Testament law had extra strict uh, punishments for those who knew what they were supposed to do and, or not do, and they did it anyways, that there were sins of high-handedness, is what the Old Testament calls it, where you're shaking your fist in God's face and saying, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that's certainly worse. But the law also talks about sins of ignorance. It's not enough. To say, I didn't know. You didn't know. But you still did it. You didn't know that was an act of that sinful flesh that you have in you. But it was. It was. So what else would it be? In Leviticus, even sins of ignorance needed sacrifice and atonement. So that's God is teaching us something here. He's teaching us we can't sort of hide in a cloak of ignorance and say I didn't know that that was evil and so I'm I'm really innocent. No, it was still it was still sin. It was still an act of your flesh. Now, let's talk about sin's extent. Um, so we've talked about what it is. Uh, let's talk about sin's extent. How far does this moral disease go? What does the Bible say? How, how far and how deep does it go? We need to be very careful here. We can't trust our own heart here in this matter. We, we can't trust our own heart. Um, so we need to ask, what does the Bible say? Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's God's evaluation of men and women uh, before the flood. He looked and he was grieved that he made man. Why is he so grieved? Because every inclination of the thoughts Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. 
uh, Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that's why we can't trust ourselves. We can't trust ourselves to know how far sin goes or how deep it goes or how guilty it is. Um, because we, we began with Psalm 36. Man flatters himself too much to see his own sin. And that's not just something that unbelievers do. I can do that. Sin is deceitful and it deceives us. What does it mean to be deceived? Deceived doesn't mean confused. Sin means you are, you're deceived means you absolutely believe that you have good reasons for believing something that just isn't true. That's what it means to be deceived. You can be absolutely convinced and have a whole list of arguments for why you're right and be wrong. That's what it means to be deceived. Uh, deceived doesn't mean uncertainty. You're, you're certain, but you're wrong. So we have to ask, what does the Bible say? We, we can't trust ourselves here. And so what does the Bible say? It says sin is pervasive. From the youngest to the oldest. Geographically, it's pervasive. It's the biggest problem in every man. There's no exceptions. It's your biggest problem. And again, you could say, Man, I have other problems. No, this is the biggest one. It's pervasive through all that you are. It infects and diseases and ruins our minds. So we don't think God's thoughts after him. We think wrong thoughts. We think high thoughts of ourselves and low thoughts of God. It infects our affections, our desires, the things that we like and we don't like. And so we're a holy nation. And so Peter says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So that's what it is. Evil desires, they're there. They're there. So what I want, what I crave, those can be outright bad things or they can be good things that I want instead of what God is giving me. Uh, Sin infects our minds and our desires and our will. So... Sinful flesh will not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Why Why can't it submit to God's law? Is it some sort of functional problem where the will is like broken? And No, that's not, that's not the picture here. We can't submit to God's law simply because it, the, the flesh absolutely does not want to. And it can't be persuaded otherwise. In your pursuit of holiness, I guarantee you, you've never been able to talk your sinful flesh out of wanting what it's wanted. You've never been able to convince it otherwise. It does not want and it cannot want. So the sinful will is dead set against God. It's just like the devil The devil knows that his time is short, and so he surrenders and bows the knee because that's the thing that makes sense. Is that what it says? No, he knows his time is short, and so he rages all the more. So our consciences are infected. Right and wrong, we can't see it. And and furthermore, we don't want it. 
That's not important to us. What we want is important to us. It's all men, so it's you included, all that we are. It's not that there's nothing good in us ever. That's not what it means. But it does mean that every part of us is twisted. Now, here's the last point, and then we're going to be done. What about its guilt? What about its vileness? Its offensiveness? I find it very interesting. I don't know exactly how to say this, but I find it very interesting that when we talk about sin, when we're trying to talk about its guilt and its vileness and its offensiveness, we talk about the sinfulness of sin. That's an interesting phrase. Like, sin is the worst thing, and we just don't know how terrible it is. Men, and we can just say this, that men have no idea of the sinfulness of sin. Men, sinful men cannot grasp the vileness of their sin. Maybe to some degree they can begin to. Maybe to some degree they can learn to more and more. Um, even as believers, I'm saying. Um, but we are colorblind people walking through an art museum. We don't see it clearly. Uh, we might see in black and white which that which is just wicked red. Um, we're not good at telling the sinfulness of sin. Do cows know that they smell really bad? You know, I wonder, do cows realize that they stink? Uh, I was at Bob Evans a couple of weeks ago, and I think I was downwind from a farmer. And the only reason I think I was was it smelled like that. Um, every now and then I caught a whiff of down on the farm. and But I, what I'm saying is I don't think they could smell it. Deaf people can't tell a good singer from a bad singer. Blind people can't tell an ugly person from a beautiful person. Fallen men, fallen man doesn't have any idea about the sinfulness of sin. But just consider these two things. Consider its punishment. Everlasting destruction. Lake of fire. The soul that sins shall die, and it's dying the second death. And we can't say that's, there's no use in talking about, well, that doesn't seem fair. Um, when we argue like that, we're supposing we know the extent and the measure and the guilt of sin. Because we would have to have a clear and accurate picture of the guilt and the vileness and the wickedness of sin in order to say what's fair or what's not fair about punishment. And that's precisely what you and I are not good judges about. Um, and that's for God to decide. You know, criminals are hardly fair judges of their own cases. So consider its punishment. Consider then what it took to save us. The Son of God. The Son of God. Deity. Fully sharing in the Father's majesty and glory and honor 
had to become man and had to be pierced and crushed and wounded. God had to trod down his son with ruthlessness, without any compassion. He had to strike his son, body and soul, to remove the guilt of our sin. So ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Now, if that is the sinfulness of sin, then what a work that God does in saving us from the guilt of that sin. And what a work that God is doing in taking us and reshaping us and re and changing us to, to be like him. What a glorious work is sanctification that is going on in your life right now, believer. That a sinful person is becoming like God. What a wonder that he is doing this work in us. And we're going to see that next week. So we talked about sin. But here from now on out, we're going to be talking about sanctification. And growth and holiness. And how that happens. And how God does that. And how we participate in that. Well, I pray that God would help us and bless us this day. We're dismissed.